Today we continue our series of messages on themes from the book of Acts. So if you have your Bible or the scripture sheet we sent out, look at Acts chapter 1 with me. We'll be there in a few minutes. I love reading about the early days of things that became great. The start of our nation, for example, or maybe the beginning days of a business like Apple or Disney, or even the early years of great athletes. And I guess this explains in part why I love reading the book of Acts as well. Uh, which records for us the infant years of the Church of Jesus Christ, the greatest movement in the history of the world and the historical movement that utterly changed my life for the better, not to mention the entire world. So God's Word says not to despise the day of small things. So let's look at the record of the church when it was just a tiny band of fanatics at the, some remote outpost of the Roman Empire. The historian Luke records this concerning Jesus and his band of 11, 40 days after the resurrection, verse 4 of chapter 1. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So there's a lot in those two verses, but really I read it just for the, uh, the first verse that is speaks there about the gathering, really the first word of it all, which is the word gathering. We're going to read in the next few weeks about the church ordered and the church commissioned and the church missional, but before all of that, the first thing we read about the church is that she was gathered together by the Lord Jesus. There was a time back in the spring when we were not gathering, at least not in the normal sense as a church, and such a state as that strikes at the very essence of who we are as the church of Jesus. Humans are social beings, and Jesus' people are never called out of the world in order to be lone Christians. We are in a personal relationship with Christ, true enough, but we are also intrinsically a gathered people, a body, a family. The Greek word that is translated church is the word ecclesia. Now, as a Spanish student, I'm familiar with that because the Spanish word for church is iglesia, and it simply means gathering. We are the gathered ones. And after our spring, I am feeling more blessed than ever to be such. As we will see, the church is much more than just a gathering, but a gathering she certainly is something more, not less. The gathering of the disciples is where it all begins. And having gathered them, Jesus ascends to heaven, and the disciples, they return to Jerusalem, where they, according to the word of Jesus, hurry up and wait. We read in verse 13 of chapter 1, When they arrived, they went to the upstairs room of the house where they were staying. Here are the names of those who were present. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas, son of James. They all met together and were constantly united in prayer along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, several other women, and the brothers of Jesus. The next verse says there were 120 or so meeting in what was apparently a sizable upper room and likely no distancing. They were together. They were tight and they were praying. This is the church. It reminds me of the church that I fell in love with as a college student. About 40 of us gathered in the Springer's upstairs living room, praying, studying God's Word together, worshiping. And why do we do this? Why do we gather? Well, lots of reasons can be given in answer to that question. We are, first of all, social people. A certain percentage of humans well, they're hermits, super introverts, but generally we recognize that to be unhealthy. Humans are 
social beings. We come together in families, communities, because we need each other, and we are better together. Christians, yet more so, because we are instructed by our Master to flock together, to support one another, to pray together, to encourage each other, to learn from one another. Two weeks back, I saw a video online of a very well-known Christian pastor who was taking on John MacArthur. MacArthur, you may know, has gotten in the news a lot lately because his church has defied the edicts of the state of California by meeting indoors for worship. And whether you agree with MacArthur's stance on that matter or not isn't the point, but this other famous pastor who did not agree with MacArthur and whose church is not meeting until at least 2021 made the incredible statement that God has not commanded us to gather together. I cannot imagine what he was thinking to make such a statement. We are so commanded. The church is a gathering. It's in the very meaning of the term. Now, you can argue that virtual counts. I guess you can, but you can't say God is okay with us not gathering together. What is more, where there is a mutual love for Jesus, there is also an attraction to others who love Him, who have been rescued by His grace. We feed off of each other's faith, and together, together we grow. This is the intention of Jesus for us. God saves us individually in a way, but more often the Scriptures speak of God's calling out for Himself a people, dying for His bride, His church collectively. One of the most neglected losses of the recent lockdowns has been community. It is very underrated. So too are the corporate disciplines of going to worship, of Sabbath keeping. The love of many will grow cold without these practices. And I pray earnestly for those in our fellowship who, for various reasons, many of them very good reasons, have not been with us since way back in March. Will they ever return to the fellowship? Will their love for the Lord, will their love for the saints survive the lockdown? and the fears surrounding the virus. I am sure the results will vary, but the concern, it's quite real. So we are not called simply to be lone Christians. We are His people. God has always had a people, and the greatest thing in the world is to be a part of that people. My identity, as I indicated last week, it's not that I am a Henley, the son of Francis and Martha. It's not that I'm an O'Callan. It's not that I'm a Floridian. It's not that I'm a Forest High Wildcat or a citizen of Gator Nation. I'm all those things, but that stuff, that's nothing. What matters is that I am in the family of God, of the household of faith, a part of the body of Christ, a foot soldier in the Lord's army, and to a lesser degree, but still very important, my identity is right here as a part of North Park Church, the local expression of the universal body which I am privileged to know and to love. So, no lone Christians, no super introverts, no distancing. The Church of Jesus gathers, even when it is costly so to do. The Church of Jesus gathers. That's very clear right from the start. Next, let's consider what the gathered church does when she, met, when she meets, when she gathers. And the most obvious answer is that we pray. We saw that already in verse 14 of the first chapter, but there is more. Chapter 2, verse 42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the last one to prayer. Two chapters later, we read of the disciples gathered for prayer when God moves mightily. Now, I, I believe prayer is always relevant, always important, whether there is any obvious response from heaven or not, but I have been in prayer meetings in the church when 
Well, clearly, God shows up and everyone knows it. Acts 4, verse 31. When they had prayed, the place where they had gathered was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the Word of God with boldness. And seriously, when I read that, I feel my heart crying out, Please, good Father, may we experience this. It doesn't happen at every prayer meeting, clearly, not even when the apostles are involved in the prayer, but sometimes this does happen. You know, Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. He told us that he was always with us, but in some special sense, he comes when the church is meeting. Again, I don't know if Zoom counts or not. I expect so. The Lord could come there too. I would love to hear tales of Zoom revivals. But listen, when the church gathers, we normally pray. Some gatherings are more about prayer than others, but when the church prays, we can do so with expectancy. Fact is, you never know what you will miss if you aren't there for the prayer meeting when the church calls on God in unison. Few forces in history have had the impact of a gathered praying church. In chapter 12, we read another story along these lines. Herod had decided to garner favor with the Jewish hierarchy by abusing some of the leaders of the church. The disciple James is martyred. And now Peter is in prison in Jerusalem. It says four squads of soldiers were appointed to watch over Peter in his jail cell. This is one of the fascinating elements of Christian origins. Guards at the tomb could not escape or could not stop and escape from the tomb by a dead Jesus. Now one little apostle is watched over by four squads of soldiers. I was told this was four teams of four and six-hour shifts. I mean, that's crazy, but all this security against a praying church, and guess who wins? Chapter 12, verse 5 tells us Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. And then we read that an angel showed up in Peter's cell, put Frodo's secret ring on his finger, and together they marched out of the prison into a house where believers were gathered in prayer for Peter. How cool would that have been? That was a prayer meeting to remember. So we know the gathered church prayed. What else does the gathered church do? Well, again, verse 42, they continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Just before prayer, it mentions the breaking of bread. Now, some may regard this as the Lord's Supper, but it is almost certainly more than that. We combine it with the fellowship aspect mentioned, and you get the picture that they were eating together, time and time again, we read of the church gathering in these smaller groups and typically accompanied by food. So here's a joke for you. The school teacher asked the children in her class to bring in for show and tell symbols of their particular distinctive faith. And so the uh, Catholic child shows up with a crucifix. The Jewish child shows up with a menorah. And the Baptist kid came in with a string bean casserole. Now, I think that's, uh, that's funny. I grew up in a Baptist church. We had Wednesday night supper every week. Now, the casserole represents potlucks and a very popular potluck dish. Small town churches, they do this better than inner city churches or suburban churches even. But the history of God's people is that we eat together. One of my favorite stories from the quarantine days was how some of our church families met in the parking lot of Chick-fil-A and hollered each other and talked back and forth across the parking lot while they 
ate their dinner together in those days of ultra distancing. Chapter 2, verse 46, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Life in that early church may have been risky, but it was fun and no one, no one was lonely. In the breaking of bread and the fellowship of the table, there is a certain bonding that takes place. So I'm thankful for those in our body, like Barb Birds, like Diane Glancy, like our Compass team and our Great Awakening team who help us gather around meals and around coffee. I am for more eating together, more fellowship meals, more small group meals, more Tuesday joy lunches, more pot providence times of joy. Those events may not strike everyone as being particularly spiritual, but they set the context for friendships to build, for genuine family life to occur. So take advantage of what we have and initiate some things on your own as well, using your own home, your own kitchen, maybe even a local restaurant. Then the third thing we'll note is that the church gathered for teaching. From the very beginning, this was one of the hallmarks of the real church. Again, verse 42, they continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The first of their four commitments, teaching. Clearly from the beginning, the church has been a school, a training ground for the disciples. And Jesus, after all, said in his great commission that that's what we were to be doing. In Matthew 28, he says, make disciples, baptize them, teaching them to observe all that I command you. The church is certainly more than a school, but it is not less than that. In 2020, we are very aware there are plenty of ways to learn and to learn on your own. The resources nowadays are limitless, but there is an ingredient of learning that you just cannot find when you are studying on your own. In Ephesians, Paul says that we grow up by speaking the truth in love, in the context of relationships. And in four, uh, chapter 4, verse 18 of Ephesians, Paul Praise that we may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. With all the saints, we learn, we grow, we mature into persons who are like Jesus. Well, now let's change directions just slightly. We've been talking about what the church does when she gathers, but once dispersed, there is still a unity among us. We are still a family, and that means we are for each other. We look out for each other. We support one another. In short, we care. Our mission statement as a church is to make disciples who worship God passionately and then who connect with each other in caring community. Acts 4, right after saying that the early believers were speaking the word of God boldly, it goes on to say this, the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection and abundant grace was upon them all for there is not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet and they would be distributed as any had need." How awesome is that? This was real community. Consider what this means for us. Certainly it means that we don't want our church to simply be a worship center. And by worship center, I mean that's a so-called church that people only attend to do their worship thing. They may have a few friends there, but basically they go for the preaching and the music. There are some some great megachurches being used of God, but there are also large so-called churches that are popular as a place to go on the weekend, 
but they aren't really churches. And one reason I say that is that there's no family there, no community. Members are not known. Here's a, here's a typical experience for me as a pastor. Something like this has happened many times in my life. A family from our church left us some years back to go to a larger church in our community. They were attracted by programs they offered, but recently uh, the father was applying for a particular missions opportunity that required him to give a pastor's reference. And guess what? None of the pastors at his large church knew him well enough to give a reference, not after seven years of being involved in that church. So he contacted me. Uh, friend, a real church is a place where you know and are known. Listen to what the apostle says the church is to be like in Romans chapter 12, verse 10. He says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints. Practice hospitality. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weeps, who weeps. Sounds like a healthy family, doesn't it? And typically, the activities of a family are centered around those who are most needy, the one who is handicapped or sick at the moment. If you get a new baby, the attention diverts to whom? <laughs> that baby, the needy group that gains the church's focus in first century Jerusalem were the widows. Widows in that culture were terribly vulnerable, very little capacity to provide for their own needs. So the church early on established systems to care for their needy widows. Not all the widows in Jerusalem, but for those who were part of the church. And we know about this because in Acts 6, we read about the controversy in the church over that ministry to the widows. Acts 6 verse 1 now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. Interesting. As a pastor, this, is, uh, this verse is rather heartening for me. Even the church pastored by Peter with a board loaded with apostles could not please everybody. Disappointment in the church. It was there from the beginning. As in any group endeavor, times of dissension will arise. Not everyone will be happy. And here, one type of Jewish believer was annoyed that apparently widows of their sort were not getting equal treatment in the distribution of food. But hey, they had such a ministry of widow care because the church was called of God to look out for their own, especially those who are in need. 1 Timothy chapter 5 is a chapter mostly devoted to widow care by the local body, and it's worth a read. There it calls for provision to go to not just any widow, but godly widows who lack family who is able to care for them. It's a great example of wise, constructive compassion as opposed to indiscriminate, often short-sighted handouts. But let's get back to the complaint in Acts chapter 6, because verse 2 says, So the twelve, that is the apostles, summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Now that's interesting. The apostles are saying that they are called to a different ministry. So pause here and think. The church of Jesus has many ministries, always has. Most local churches have several. Active fellowships like ours have dozens. Are you to care about all of them? Are you? Yes, you are. But are you to personally be engaged in all of them? Well, of course not. The apostles cared about the widow ministry, but they were alert to the potential distraction that that could be for them. What was their solution? 
They said, let's create a ministry team, seven godly men who will oversee the ministry to the widows, and we will stay focused on the ministry of the Word and prayer. One other observation from this, the Church of Jesus is multifaceted. It is doing a lot of things, teaching adults, teaching kids, leading worship, sending missionaries, reaching out locally, promoting justice, caring for the hurting, supporting the grieving, strengthening families, providing for the sacraments, developing leaders, supporting missionaries around the world. On and on I could go, but this means we who lead in the body of Christ. We're we're typically not specialists. Now, parachurch groups start up that focus on one specific ministry. One ministry, and church leaders often hear our churches compared unfavorably to these specialty groups. Sure, pastors have to be open to identifying failures, but give some thought to what you're saying when you advocate for one element of the church's mission and grow disgruntled because the church is not as focused on that thing which has grabbed your heart as you would prefer they be. This is one reason why we partner as a church with parachurch ministries. We focus on campus ministry through CCO and on justice through Women's Choice Network and on the homeless through Light of Life and on poverty through World Vision. These groups are not us, but wait a second. Yes, they are. The focus of the seven elected in Acts 6, it would be different from the 12 apostles, but they were all on the same team in the same family. The different callings and commitments we all have will lead us sometimes into conflict, but a clear picture of, of the whole will help us, I think, live in love and patience with one another. All right, let's see if I can land this plane in the next five minutes or so. What are the applications of today's theme from Acts? The apostles of the church gathered to pray, to teach, to eat, and then care for one another. There are responsibilities that fall on the leadership of the church, that's for sure, to provide context for us to be such a church. And then there are responsibilities for you. When the invitation to plug in, to relate, to be a part of the family comes, what are you going to do? Remember, when we talk about the church, we're, we're talking about you. It, it always fascinates me, fascinates me when people say, you know, Pastor, the church ought to be doing this, and the church needs to do that. And I wonder, who are you talking about? When you join the church, you are the church. Now, brethren, our unity, our family life depends a great deal on how well we remember what God says about us as an us. When we speak to each other, do we remember as we do that we have one father, that we are one family, that we will be such forever? If we did, three things would be true. First, we would value one another. We would be mutually precious. I felt this acutely in the spring when we were restricted from live in-person fellowship. So now let's ask how we can value and invest in one another more faithfully. Secondly, if you remember that or we are a family, you're going to be ready to share with your church. That's the chief responsibility in a family. The only child doesn't have to share her stuff, but she also misses out on the relationships. But when you have uh, the brothers and the sisters, what do you have to do? What do you have to do, kids? You have to share, don't you? Share the food, share the toy, share the iPad, the bedroom, the bathroom. That is the price of family life. But the rewards are oh so very sweet. We share. Thirdly, if you remember that we are a family, you'll make the effort to connect. Don't ostracize yourself from the family by your own choices. So many get caught up in other things of lesser value. 
Whatever it is, I urge you to see the beauty of the gathered family of Christ. Connect with us. Join with us. Don't be afraid that it will mean less for your biological family. Oh, no. With proper balance, it does not take away from your bio-family. It adds to that. It is the enemy of your soul who seeks to persuade you away from what God has provided. So I must ask you, does your life reveal a connectedness to God's family, the gathered church? When you build a building, you glue bricks right on each other. There's a closeness there. Do you know anything like that with God's people? Do you relate to your brothers and sisters like a real functioning family? Or are you out there like one lone solitary brick? What good is a solitary brick? Put them together and you can make something awesome. On your screen, you'll see a diagram that I found in Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Church, and it depicts what Warren calls the five circles of commitment. Going from the outside in, there's the community that doesn't do church at all, and then the crowd or the regular attendees at our worship. And then inside that is the congregation or the members of the church. Inside that are the, the committed ones, the maturing members. And then at the center, there's the, the core of the church, those who are truly giving, truly serving, and I would like to add one more circle in the middle, one more point, and that is Christ. And as we move further in, as we grow in our devotion to the church, we become closer to the Christ himself who gave his life for that church. So today my challenge is this. Locate yourself on this chart and then make a commitment today to move one or two circles closer in. Can you do that? Do you have sufficient reason from God's word to do that? As we close, I urge you to simply ask God if He would have you connect with His family at North Park in ways that you have not already, and then act on what it is that you hear from Him. We will give you time to do that. Close your eyes, bow your heads, and ask the Lord some things. Lord, should I join a small group? Father, would you have me plug into a ministry team? Master, is there a way we can turn our home? into a center of ministry to bless the saints with meals and with care. And Father, I pray that you would be speaking to each heart according to your wisdom, according to their situation, according to their need. Lord, build your church as the gathered body who comes together to pray, who comes together to teach, who comes together to fellowship and to care for one another. And for these graces, we call on you in the good name of Jesus. Amen.